0: The Multiverse Podcast presents The Crushing Fist, Part 7, written by Matt Demersky, produced by Eunice Randall, and narrated by Raphael Marmel. We moved against all instinct. We pressed ahead as a group toward limitless danger. Every nerve in my body, save the ones in my scorched hand, screamed against our heading. A righteous holy eye glared down at us from above the horizon, radiating searing white judgment. Every few minutes, successive waves of force pulsed out, threatening to physically knock us to our feet. It was space itself, ripping a bit more. Ever so slowly, the whining in my ears calmed, and my hearing returned, as we climbed over the debris of shattered buildings, pushed between blackened cars, and eyed the dangers ahead. We were surrounded by the sounds of disaster. Injured men and women screamed for help from inside collapsed buildings, scattered people with bright red burns, and charcoal-black patches of skin wandered by, begging for assistance. A baby cried somewhere, but there was nobody to attend to him. It was too much for my heart to endure, and I thought of stopping and helping each wounded man, woman, or child we passed. But Christina kept on. Her hopeless gaze locked forward, her despair shutting out the cries. I'd never seen her like that before, but I was kept by her side by the knowledge that she needed my support now more than ever. And over all those sounds all those pains and all those despairing emotions, there was one singular unifying roar. The wind, which had been rapid and searing for so many days, had become a constant and slowly rising fiery gale. It was livable out of the direct line with the righteous eye in the sky, but the tempestuous winds in some streets painted my exposed skin with the feeling of standing too close to a bonfire. On those streets, it was all I could do to keep my eyes open as we held our arms over our faces and pushed on. We were a strange sight to behold, I was sure. Me, her, Vasilyev, Ethan, the Brigadier General, and not exactly Noah were all in nice clothes that had been dust-blasted and torn by debris, and six heavily armed soldiers surrounded us in a trailing half-circle. Most of the survivors we passed thought that we were heading somewhere safe, and they began following us, ignoring our explanations that we were heading into danger, not away from it. They either couldn't hear us, or they didn't believe us. That was the hardest part for me to bear. These people, while in shock, were going to follow us right into the jaws of hell. As we covered the next few city blocks, we could see the ungodly inhabitants of Tescoy spilling out from the torn space surrounding the distant white hole. Some of those creatures would surely die from the fall, but I imagined the rest would only be made furious and hostile. How many miles away was it? Our military contact had said it was two or three miles northeast of the city, and we were nearing the city's core. The numerous skyscrapers ahead had survived the initial eruption, and now stood like gigantic blackened and smoldering monoliths. Once they towered over us, we would be near the military base, and its vast underground machines that might let us portal to safety. Christina's radio crackled as we stopped to endure another wave of force, and she immediately pulled it up and shouted back. For a moment, I heard Heath's voice, but it faded into the same forceful static that had dominated our radio since the white hole had erupted. Damn it, she breathed, before turning around the corner of a tall, shattered building and pulling back abruptly to hide against the wall. She turned her head to us and spoke quietly. This is it. Past here, there'll be all sorts of terrors. If anyone wants to run the other way, now's the time. One of the soldiers with us shook her head and then adjusted her helmet slightly before speaking. No, ma'am. The others wordlessly echoed that sentiment. The crowd of injured and scared people that had followed us stood silently, waiting for us to lead the way. I wasn't sure whether it was bravery or desperation, but I was glad for the group's solidarity. It felt like being back in the military again, and i never felt right after I'd lost that bond. We Strange Twelve were a squad, and we'd found ourselves on a battlefield, and we had a very clear mission. We have to make it seven city blocks, Christina said after peering around the corner again. There's a world of shit between us and that base. I don't know where that ruby cube is gone, either, but I can't see much more from here. She looked at me. Khan, how's your leg? I looked down at my black cast. My broken leg had been starting to hurt something fierce from all the use. I'm alright. I think she knew I was lying, but accepted my answer with a slight smile. Well then. She looked around. Not just at us, but also at the dozens of followers behind us. Everyone stick together. Shout out what you observe. Knowledge, and gaining knowledge quickly is the only thing that will keep you alive through the next seven blocks. These things aren't designed to eat you or kill you. They didn't evolve with you. They have no idea what you are. So just figure out how to stay out of their way. Got it? A sea of heads bobbed with scared nods. She addressed the armed soldiers. Guns are a last resort. Not only will they probably not work, they'll attract a ton of attention. With that, she slipped around the corner. I followed immediately. "'submerging into the heated horizontal river of blasting air. "'Instinctively, I felt my fellows behind and alongside me. "'All eyes scanned every detail of the rubble "'and the building-lined canyon ahead. "'Thinking few would look at the same spot, "'I peered past a series of random debris fires "'that were starting to die down. "'I saw them first and pointed. "'A cloud of them danced among the dying flames, "'not touching them, "'but merely floating in their wavy emanations. "'They looked like orbs at first like bloated seed pods almost. They were clearly some sort of plant life. As we tried creeping past, they began floating away from the fading flames and toward us. One of the soldiers batted at one with a fist, and it bounced away briefly unharmed. They didn't seem obviously dangerous, but Christina motioned us quickly ahead, her eyes suspicious. Her concern was proven right when the first pod opened widely near this soldier's face. It had no seeds within. Instead, it expanded and swiftly latched right around his head. Overcome with alarm, we immediately began hitting them away as best we could, but the swarm continued to grow. Pulling a knife from the belt of one of our soldiers, I gripped the corrugated orb of plant matter and cut as deeply as I dared. It came away and the freedman gasped for air, unharmed. As we tried to fight the swarms off, a plant pod slipped around Ethan's head from behind, and I leapt to him, cutting it away as quickly as I could. Christ! Thanks, he breathed, terrified. More pods swarmed toward the crowd. The fires, Christina shouted. These pods aren't big enough to have complex nervous systems. They're either attracted to heat or to carbon dioxide. The embers of those flames would still be hotter than us. Hold your breath and run. Every single one of us has to do it or they'll find us. Break the carbon dioxide trail. I took a deep breath, filled my lungs to capacity, and hurried forward as quickly as I dared on a leg that was beginning to feel like grinding shards of broken glass. Others followed, dragging a few living bodies with spherical green covering their heads. We clambered over a pile of debris and then watched the plant pods swarm about aimlessly, but none of them dared breathe until Christina gave the order. Her hand, held high for the run, now dropped, and we all breathed out as one. Our followers cut the plant matter away from their beleaguered friends, and it seemed most of us had made it past the first block. Four bodies lay in the devastation behind us green spheres pulsing weakly above their shoulders. I turned away, the heaviness in my heart causing me physical pain. Blue crystal mounds dominated debris ahead. I stared back and forth wildly, looking for the spectral forms I'd seen moving among them from the distance of Tescoy's mountain hideaway. This close, I could see something inside each crystalline mound. High as a man and as wide as a car, the mound seemed to contain some sort of spinning light. And when two lights from two different mounds aligned, the ghostly image of a creature in horrific pain flashed between them at flinch-inducing speeds. Some of the creatures so illuminated were human, and screaming at us as they raced by. They're still alive, I realized aloud. Horrified. Somewhere. Christina's jaw hung low as she breathed hard to recover from her run from the plant pods. Her hard eyes regarded the uneven and blasted landscape ahead. There was no going around. The high buildings and incredible debris had made sure of that. We'll have to go through, she said after a moment, audibly hating the idea. Don't get caught between the two aligned crystals. You'll end up like those poor souls trapped in there. What is it? Not exactly, Noah asked, staring. What's happened to them? Nobody's ever dared to figure it out, she responded, analyzing possible routes between the blue mounds. But they do say the human images never fade away. Whatever they are, whatever's causing them such pain, they never age and never die. They'll be trapped in there forever, as far as anyone can tell. I've got some C4, one of our soldiers offered, rather angry at the described fate of fellow humans. Christina shook her head. I don't know what that would do. These crystals behave very specifically right now. We have to get through on their rules, not ours. A moment later, a spectral man in pain whizzed past, the terror in his eyes clear. I followed, leaping to Christina, and then we turned around to offer help to Ethan. One by one, we leapt from safe spot to safe spot sometimes narrowly avoiding those aligned lights and flickering images by only a hair's breadth. People tripped, or didn't listen properly, or were simply slow due to shock, and nearly paid the ultimate price for it. Halfway through the makeshift valley of ghastly blue crystals, a shouting rose from the trailing crowds. The floating plant pods had picked up on the trail of our breathing again. Christina didn't even waste a moment with an expletive. Hold your breath and move as fast as you can. She leapt forward and I half ran, half hobbled after her. Forced to hold their breaths, the panic in the crowd behind us was eerily silent. Dozens of people leapt and dove and bolted between the crystalline mounds, and I saw the first man get caught. The passing spectral image of some weird creature brushed his arm, and he was pulled back immediately turning translucent as his body flickered into the nearest crystal. In front of me, his image flickered by, his face full of terror at the realization of what had happened to him. He had enough time only to look at me in terrified Askins before he disappeared once more. I couldn't even shout that I was sorry without letting go of my breath. The green pods were now encroaching our valley, drawn in by our carbon dioxide trail, but then randomly scattered by its sudden secession. My head pounding, my lungs burning, I felt my awareness starting to shrink. I almost slept forward at the wrong time, and one of our soldiers pulled me back, getting caught in the beam himself on pure instinct, as the vicious tide pulled him roughly past me. I gripped his still physical hand and used the backward momentum I already had to pull him as hard as I could. He seemed to splash out of the ethereal blue, his colors and solidness returning, eyes wide, hand over his mouth to keep from breathing. He nodded to me in horrified thanks, and we kept moving. Many of us had just made it past the first invisible danger line when a concussive wave from the burning wound in the sky finally hit us once more. I fell to the ground, already on the verge of passing out. But a nearby soldier was not so lucky. She was the one who had spoken for the group, and I was too weak from suffocation to reach out and save her. The spectral blue took her, and she was gone in an instant. And still, we stumbled forward, only daring to breathe once cover had been achieved. Huddling behind a building that had collapsed into the street, we urged everyone else on, partly to encourage them, and partly to remind them not to breathe once they made it past us. Three more were pulled into blue crystalline mounds, and four fell from lack of breath and were soon beset by the trailing plant pods. Staring back, I realized what was about to happen to us. Christina's mass despair was hidden from the others, but clear to me. She didn't actually expect us to survive this. We would lose a few people each block, with every loss bleeding away our manpower and herd size, until only a handful of the quickest and smartest survivors remained. And then, none at all. I touched her hand and she squeezed mine hard in response, her eyes moving to the next challenge ahead. Several of our core eleven climbed the rubble to get a good vantage point on the intense oddity we faced. It was possibly the most harrowing threat I'd personally seen. Before us, the street stood empty and clean. The faces of the buildings flanking the city road were not charred or scorched or even as much as damaged. Shining under the fog sun, cars lined each sidewalk, parked exactly where one might expect. The street itself was free and clear of debris, and the few sidewalk-planted trees did not sway in the heated winds. The hell? Christina asked rhetorically, mirroring our thoughts. She looked up to the sword, who gazed forward without expression. What do you think? Could be an illusion. He replied evenly. Or a slow time bubble. He paused. Or perhaps the extreme convergence of probability. Statistically, at least some parts of the city should remain undamaged. Not exactly, Noah spoke up determinedly. Could be a small piece of another reality. I've seen patchwork damage you wouldn't believe. Christina clenched her fists. Damn it. We just can't risk it. Her gaze traveled to a nearby alley. We climb. Following her lead, we found the fire escape she'd seen, and a long trail of human beings began creeping up to it. Christina's hand found mine, and she helped me climb despite the unbearable pain in my broken leg. The vast metal scaffolding groaned under the weight of so many people. Just before we reached the roof, her radio crackled to life again. Hello? Can anyone hear me? Heath asked. Continuing to climb, she clicked the radio on while it was still attached to her belt. Heath! What's your situation? I finally managed to compensate for the unusual interference, he replied. The hell is going on over there? She helped lift me up to the second-to-last metal grating. A white hole. A white hole? We clambered up the last bit, pushed through a random wave of force, pulled ourselves onto the roof, and... Heath, she asked, breathless and frozen in place. How many people can you communicate with right now? Anyone with a television or radio? Thanks to the systems in place there. I hunkered down behind a jutting duct, heart pounding. She stood in place, judging the sudden threat in the sky. Heath, I need you to tell everyone you can. Tell them to spread the word. I'd seen it only briefly, and my glance had been met with that same strange returned awareness. It had just come out from behind the skyscrapers downtown like a curious crimson and angular moon. Not concerned at all with the white hole blazing a few miles distant, it floated past those enormous buildings, dwarfing them with ease. I knew that the tallest building downtown was around 5,000 feet tall, and the cube seemed to be four or five times bigger. "'Don't look at the ruby cube,' she said in the radio, bringing it up to her mouth. "'No matter what happens, don't look at it. If too many people look at it for too long, we're all dead.' Heath's voice trembled with confusion. "'All right.' I'll spread the word. People began streaming up onto the roof behind us, and we shouted for them to avoid looking at the ruby cube. Doing as they were told, they hid with me and waited for everyone to gather. As the last few people tried to climb onto the roof, a tremor hit, and the strained fire escape gave way with a sudden shocking squeal. Everyone froze as the sound of crashing metal reached us. One of our soldiers looked over the edge for a long moment and then turned to us with a sad shake of his head. The next building was across only a five-foot gap. Judging it manageable, we worked together to pull up as many of the rooftop mechanisms as we could, forming a shoddy but serviceable eight-foot bridge. A dozen men slid it out over the next roof, and held it down while the women and children with us crossed. Christina followed after, and I went next, trying not to look down at the dizzying drop on the other side. The odd cleanliness existed in the alley below us as well. For a brief moment, looking down when I should not have, I saw the image flicker. Illusion, I shouted. It's an illusion. What did you see? Christina shouted over the roaring winds. I grimaced and saved my answer until I reached the other side safely. Only then did I quietly respond. Mouths. She winced. That one word had been enough explanation for her. We held the bridge down as the last few men crossed over. One of our soldiers was last and a massive passing wave of force hit us just as he began crossing. Despite our best efforts, the bridge snapped, and we were forced to watch as he fell straight down into a dumpster filled with soft trash bags. Climbing out, he checked himself for injuries before waving up at us to indicate he was alright. How do we get him? one of the men asked. Christina pulled us away. He's not fine. He's an illusion. The men seemed confused and mutely horrified, but they accepted her answer and we quickly moved on i tried my best to shake my unwilling visualization of what was really happening to our alley at that moment. I'd briefly seen the alley floors and walls coated with eerie yellow flesh that had been filled completely with gnashing spiked mouths. The next buildings had not survived as well as those two had, but we were past the zone of illusion, as far as we could tell. Heading down into the building, we traversed dust-blasted hallways, making our way through burnt-out offices and openings that had been punched in the walls. There were no people, no bodies, a fact which was not lost on any of us, but there was nothing we could do about it but remain wary. We soon found the source of those punched holes in the walls. The street outside contained a vast sea of four-inch thick vines, complete with wide verdant leaves. Even as we watched, one of the vines snapped up and picked a floating plant pot out of the air, pulling it rapidly into a waiting acid digestion pool. Those oozing purple pools dotted the vine-covered street, and I thought I had saw a human skeleton or two spread out along their edges, as if the people that had been dragged in had managed to climb halfway out. What now, someone asked. Everyone's exhausted. Vasiliev breathed, leaning against a wall. Ethan winced and held his sides. I should have played squash more often. Maybe I'd be in better shape. Noah's odd twin said nothing as he sat down for a breather. The brigadier general remained standing, apparently unwinded. Our four remaining soldiers quietly ditched some of their gear, trying to lighten their loads. The crowds behind us remained sprawled through the dust-blasted hallways, breathing hard and waiting to see what we would do. In particular, I watched a mother tiredly bouncing her baby, trying to keep it quiet. Had she and the child really made it all this way? My heart went out to them. There has to be another way. Christina ran her hands through her sweat-matted hair, her desperation finally showing through. There's no other way. There are no options. Life doesn't always provide a way to survive, she trembled with anger. Even if we do make it out of here, these people will be the only remnants of my entire world. I might never have felt at home here, but... She kicked the burnt office chair forcefully and it crumpled. God damn it! Even then, everything else is just going to be destroyed anyway soon after. I hobbled over to her and wrapped both arms around her tightly, even my burnt and bandaged hand. It's alright. She clutched me back and I turned her so that I could look past her at all the dirty, exhausted, and fearful faces. We're halfway there, right? I asked. She took in a breath, shuddered with a stress-induced half-sob, and nodded against me. I drove the point home. So what do we got? You always told me to logic it out. She laughed weakly. I did, didn't I? I should have stayed a teacher. Nah. The pay's not good enough, I countered softly. Her laugh grew deeper. Okay, so... I said, fighting my lack of breath to keep my voice steady. A white hole, burning in the sky and growing. Crazy hot winds. Intermittent, weird force pushing us back. Tremors that are getting worse. Everything from Tescoy spilling out all over. The crushing fist focusing here on the first world. What else? What's good? What can we use? Or what have we brought with us here? The breathing slowed as she settled into serious thought. We've got ten of us and a couple dozen civilians. Heath on the radio. She glanced over at Ethan's hands and he looked down, startled. A book that refuses to be left behind and... She slowed, her head raising from my shoulder. I let her go, hoping she'd thought of something. An unusual bomb. The rest of us exchanged confused glances. She grabbed the radio. Heath, you there? Yes, how can I help? Who are you in communication with? Anyone with high-level clearance or scientific credentials? Quite a few people like that have taken shelter in the nuclear defense system bunkers. Her eyes lit up. Heath, I need you to find out if any of them know about the bomb I brought with me to the First World. The military took it away, but I have no doubt they kept it somewhere. A few minutes passed in silence. It was a strange trade-off. Everyone needed to recover their strength. But the situation outside grew worse with every passing second. We could hear all sorts of strange growls and cries in the streets and our lookouts reported numerous eerie creatures being grabbed and eaten by the vine infestation. In a way, the illusion mass mouths and the sprawling vines were temporarily protecting us from the rising tide of horrible threats. We could see the acid pools filling, though, and the vines growing lethargic as their hunger became increasingly sated. Heath's voice finally came over the radio once more. I've got a Dr. Evans that says the bomb didn't end up working the way they'd intended. It was supposed to strengthen the shield, but it only wrecked the world they'd tested it on. And worse, that damage propagated down a few nearby realities as well as the pressure on the shield grew. Tell him I know that, Christina replied, visibly hopeful. The White Hole is only happening because of the pinpoint focus of all the pressure translating down through the shield system. I want to blow a hole in the walls of reality. It might just save us all. Ask him where the bomb is. Many of us stood, including myself. The idea immediately made sense on a visceral level, and our hearts filled with a new kind of energy. He says that might actually work, at least for now. He says the bomb is at the military base outside the city. They'd intended to ship it somewhere distant, but the paperwork hadn't come through yet. I'd been there. The military had exiled me through that base, and it was in the opposite direction of the way we'd been traveling. A part of me leapt at the thought of heading away from the white hole, but that base was much farther away. We were three and a half blocks from escape, and miles from fighting back against the fate of the world. Get these people the last few blocks and get them safe, Christina told the Brigadier General, her eyes distant. The massive man nodded, and turned to the crowd. Everyone follow me. The vines have eaten their fill, and stop moving. We're going to get you out of here. Worried faces donned hopeful smiles. As the crowds moved through the shattered wall, Christina pulled away, and I followed. She ordered two of the remaining soldiers to go with the civilians, and two remained by our side. Ethan ran after us and gripped my arm. I don't know when I'll see you again, friend, but I think this is yours. I took the book from him. Be safe, Ethan. I sighed. Buddy. He laughed. I knew I'd get you eventually. A moment later, he was gone, moving ahead with the crowd. Noah's odd twin, realizing that ours was a job for soldiers alone, went with him. Christina, Vasiliev, and I made our way through the building the other way, tailed by our two soldiers. Going out of back entrance, we managed to avoid our earlier encounters. With small numbers and practiced discipline, we slipped through tight spaces and broken buildings, evading all manner of horror in the streets. For a time, I couldn't even feel the pain in my leg. The mission was too important, and the hope of actually accomplishing something too strong. Eventually, we came out ahead of the growing territories claimed by otherworldly entities and we found ourselves treading through streets filled with dazed survivors once more. I thought to warn them, but Christina shook her head. We couldn't afford to build up a following of confused civilians again, and they would certainly latch onto us if we expressed any authority. I cited them first. Bikes. One by one, we found a working bike among the racks outside of a gym, and the going became vastly easier. It was a bit comical, seeing burly and hard-eyed soldiers riding pink bikes. But our choices had been few. And I had a chance to ease my leg, using it at a specific angle on the pedals to avoid hurting myself. My burnt and bandaged hand had awoken from numbness with a biting agony, but it functioned well enough to ride. Heading in our new direction, the searing winds pushed us onward, and the waves of force propelled us. It was almost as if existence was helping us to get where we were going, and no threats had reached out that far. Calming considerably, I let myself process the idea that we might actually succeed. The white hole is growing, and it would destroy the planet eventually. But not in the next hour or two. And that was all the time we needed. Christina tilted her head as if listening to a distant sound. They made it. They actually made it. They just completed the portal journey. She paused, with 23 casualties along the way. Huh? Vasiliev asked. Oh. Ward. Talking in your head? She nodded, noticing how our squadmate had called the brigadier general by his first name. That implied that he had forgiven the sword, now that the blame for past injustice was hers and hers alone. Ethan? And Noah's twin? Vass asked. I gulped. That was good to know. One other concerned me. Can you ask him if a woman with a baby made it? She looked ahead for a moment. He doesn't see anyone like that among the survivors. I swallowed bitterly. How many innocents had to die? How many children would... Oh, wait she said after a moment. Yeah, she's there. Laughing as we rode, I blinked away the start of angry tears. Good, good. Why? she asked, riding alongside me. I glanced over, confused. Why is it good? I mean, like, was she someone you knew? Oh, I get it. You're jealous. No, I'm not, she responded lamely, focusing on steering past some debris to hide her sheepish smile. Just wondering? Vas watched us from his bike, just behind. I glanced at him once or twice, wondering what he thought of the woman who had once tortured him now riding ahead of him and acting like a normal person. His jaw was set, but his face was unreadable. Nobody I knew, I finally told her. Was just hoping that she and her baby had made it. She nodded quietly, the momentary lightness between us overcast by the gloomy reality of the situation. We came to the high residences marking the outskirts of the city, and we passed beyond that wall without much fanfare. Streams of refugees were walking out in endless lines, mirroring the lines I'd seen heading toward the First World on foot during my exile. It was as the sword had said, as Ward had said, that our walls were pointless. Those inside and out would both die in the same way. Out here, as we broached the fresh verdant landscape, it was oddly quiet and peaceful. The high buildings had shielded the immediate countryside from much of the initial blast, and the lands beyond had enough miles between them and the White Hole to survive relatively intact. The waves of force still came at irregular intervals, but were weaker, and the searing winds were merely a warm breeze. It occurred to me that much of the First World probably had no idea their planet was in direct danger. Had people on other continents even felt anything? Were those in Asia still sleeping, totally unaware that reality itself had begun to rupture? The military base soon revealed itself among the hills. What had once been scarcely populated was now completely deserted. The layabouts and apathetic soldiers had clearly hightailed it into parts they imagined were safer. Vasiliev, Christina said respectfully, pulling her bike to a halt at the entrance. He stopped alongside her, his expression carefully neutral. Yes? Will you take Khan to the medical area and see what you can do for his hand? Yes, I can do that. She threw a nod at our two soldiers. You two, with me. We'll find the bomb and rearm it. Everyone stay in contact with your radios. We rode off in separate directions. The medical building was small, but clearly marked. Vass found some supplies, began unwrapping my hand, and grimaced. You got torched pretty bad. I clenched my teeth against the pain of the bandages pulling at my frail skin. Yeah, thanks though, he said. We might have been cooked alive if those flames had gotten down to us. I nodded, wincing as he applied antibacterial cream. The room was painfully silent, and I felt I had to address the issue. I want you to forgive Christina. He didn't stop treating and rebandaging my hand with a fresh gauze. I can't. You should, I told him. You don't understand what happened. I guess I can. He found sticky tape and used it to seal the gauze on. Lots of people lose a daughter, Khan. Lots of people don't pursue some sort of misguided vengeance against a giant spider made of corpses, torturing innocent and unwilling soldiers along the way. Do you know what it's like to sit in a hotbox that you made? To wither away hour by hour, dying, surrounded by your best friends and squadmates? Knowing that they can't do anything to help you? Because it's that very brotherhood that is doing it to you? At her order, he shuddered. She shot a guy, Khan. When Daniels was reading from that book, when she was stitching herself up, she fucking shot a guy. Didn't give it a single thought. She's sharp and brutal. She's a weapon. A human weapon. I frowned unhappily. Vass let out a deep sigh. Ward Shaw is not a double-edged sword. She is. That's not fair. Oh yeah? He asked. I wonder if there's an ounce of humanity left in her. She's lying to you as we speak. I stood abruptly. The orders had been so smooth, and my training to receive orders so ingrained that I hadn't even questioned her decision. Ignoring the crunching in my legs, I ran out of the medical building and across the grounds. Vass alongside. A helijet was already loudly primed and ready to launch, and Christina and the two soldiers were loading a blackened metal dodecahedron into the open ramp at the back. That object was unmistakably a bomb, and there was no doubt in my mind that my ex-wife had intended to launch without us. Hobbling up to the ramp, I faced her with burning ire. She didn't look at the other three men with us when she gave the order. Standing halfway up the helijet ramp, she looked at only me. Give us a moment, guys. Bass and the other two soldiers moved off to a respectable distance, which wasn't far, given the latent whine of the heli engines. "'You were going to launch all on your own, weren't you?' I asked. She kept watching me for a moment. "'There's no sense in all of us dying.' "'Dying?' "'We've got to detonate the bomb as close to the white hole as possible,' she said. "'Someone's got to fly out of there and drop this thing from above. All sorts of random pieces of the planet are being pulled in from damaged realities.' so it's going to be spitting out chunks of mountain, ocean waters, magma, and who knows. I took a step closer, putting my foot onto the bottom of the ramp. I don't care. There's a sea of horrible threats between us and there, she continued. All the airborne, ungodly monsters from Tescoy and the ruby cube to top it off. People were told not to look, but that's not going to last. They'll get afraid, they'll get distracted, or it'll fly too close to the survivors leaving the city. I stepped another foot up the ramp. It doesn't matter. And when the bomb itself goes off, I have no idea what will happen. I don't know if flying high will even do anything. If the bomb works and the inner shield fractures, the white hole will go wild before it dissipates. If it even does. Anything out there is in for a world of chaos. My last step brought me right beneath her, looking up at her face. I'm staying with you until the end. She grabbed me then, her unrelenting hardness finally giving way. Against my cheek, I felt tears running down her face marking a pain deeper than what she'd felt earlier that morning when humanity had betrayed itself with celebration and revelry instead of a surging will to fight. Khan, don't you get it? This is the end. The story's coming to a close. Humanity's tale is over. Even if we stop the white hole here, even if we'd somehow saved everyone on this world, the crushing fist has us dead to rights. We're almost out of time and we don't even know who's doing it. We don't even know who is attacking us. I sobbed, too, at her words. The hourglass of humanity was a physical, tangible thing now, as the sands ran low. The last moments would go quickly, as the last moments tended to do. It still doesn't matter. It's not in me to leave your side. She gripped my arms, her face contorted with pain, tears, and regret. I hate you for being you, she sobbed. I wish that you'd screwed up or do something mean or dumb so I could justify trying not to think about you for the last five years. It was only ever you, and I couldn't feel anything else alone. Nothing else mattered. Nobody else ever mattered. It was only ever me, you, and Laura. Existence is harsh and uncaring, but we were ours. Our family was our reality, and nobody could take that from us. And they still can't. She pushed me back forcefully, her face red and streaming. I'm still in love with you, asshole, and that's why you can't come with me. I need you to live so that any of this matters. I don't want to go back to being the monster I was when nothing mattered. I stood in place, dumbfounded. There was only one thought in my mind. I still love you two. Which is why I can't stay here while you go off alone. Oh, come off it, Vasilyev shouted, sounding rude on purpose out of embarrassment. I can fly the jet, you jerks. Get out of my goddamn way. He shoved past heading for the pilot's seat. And I'm better at it than a civilian contractor, I bet. Coughing with awkwardness, the two soldiers came over and helped carry the bomb the rest of the way into the craft. Christina moved out of the way, eyes wide. You don't have to do this. Vasiliev turned in his chair and smirked. Consider this your forgiveness, though Lord knows if you deserve it. Seems humanity's tale is coming to a close and I'm finding it hard to hold the grudges. She gulped, processed his words, and then nodded slowly. Thank you, Vasiliev. Ah, he replied, suddenly embarrassed again. He turned away to press preparatory buttons on the pilot's console. It's nothing. And besides, I don't plan on dying out there, so it's not some brave sacrifice anyway. It is, though, I said, overcome by his act. It is brave. Get out of my plane, he shouted, waving his free hand at us. Obliging, we stepped out, not sure what to feel except hope that he would succeed. One of the soldiers remained on board. Sir, he said to Christina, he's going to need someone to push the bomb out the back. She nodded. He saluted and the ramp slowly lifted until it went flush with the back of the heli The engines powered up to full strength and the radio crackled. This is going to suck, Vasilyev said. I take it all back. Nobody's forgiven and I hate you all. Good luck, Christina replied sincerely. He sighed. Thanks. Christina, our one remaining soldier, and I watched him take off. The helijet ascended quickly, picking up speed as it headed toward the glowing white eye on the horizon. The buildings and trees nearby made it hard to see him, and the three of us ran up to the top of the building to watch him soar over the sky. Oh shit, Christina said, seeing it before we did. She grabbed a radio. Heath! Heath! What's up? Everything all right? You have to tell people not to look at the ruby cube. I did. Tell them again. I don't have full communications. I'll have to do whatever you have to do, she screamed, for the ruby cube had begun to ascend higher. Not in response to Vassiliev's helijet, which it dwarfed completely, but in response to thousands of people fleeing the city beneath it. Thousands of people looked up in terror as that cube took up position above them and began to unfold. I wasn't sure what I had expected. I had had some vague notion of it shooting lasers or teleporting people inside itself to suffocate them, or maybe crashing down onto crowds to wipe them out. I hadn't expected that it was going to begin moving and changing. Each of its sides began unfolding in a complex pattern. Or at least it had that appearance. What could possibly be inside? What was going to emerge from a carved crimson box a mile and a half long on each side? Heath! Christina screamed at the top of her lungs. True abject terror in her voice for the first time I'd ever heard. Do anything! Do anything at all! For God's sake, stop people look! A ringing sound emanated from somewhere next to us. Looking over, we saw our surprised soldier reach down and pull something out of his pocket. He lifted the cell phone to his ear. Hello? He nodded, then looked at us. It's that guy, Heath. He says not to look at the ruby cube. He knows me by name. Christina looked forward, watching the geometric crimson pattern refold back into the cube. Heath got their names from the databases, called every single person, every single cell phone at the same time. His voice came back on the radio. I don't feel very good. You're right, Heath. What's wrong? How was I able to do that? He asked, fatally sad. Where am I, Christina? Where am I, really? She looked at her radio, subtly mortified. I'm sorry. I am sorry. More than you know for not telling you. For not telling me what? He asked, audibly dreading the answer. I asked for our soldier's radio and lifted it. Heath, this is Con Thompson. Hey... You just saved all our lives, I think. Thanks. Sure? His tone picked up a tiny bit. That's good. Christina watched me as I spoke. Keep it together, friend. We're not out of the woods yet here. Can you focus a little bit longer? Yeah? Yes? I can. All right, thank you. How far is Vast from the White Hole? There was a momentary pause. Not far now. He's begun evasive maneuvers to avoid huge radar contacts. They look like huge boulders or something. Christina nodded silently. We waited, tense, as Heath gave the play-by-play of Vasiliev, Blacku's final flight. Apparently he must have had extensive training, or he was simply desperate enough to fly the big gambles. It'll seem like endless mountains to him, Christina said quietly. He can never reach the center, as space is pulling away infinitely there. But he only has to get close. I imagine there are insane, ongoing winds, all sorts of dangerous debris being thrown at him, and probably electrical disturbances. She stepped toward the edge of the roof, watching the distant, blazing hole in the sky. There was a pair of sunglasses on the dash. I hope he found them. It's going to get bright, even through the shielded glass. He's off the radar, Heath said grimly. Several heartbeats pounded in my chest before anything happened. We stood, frozen. Unable to think or speak for fear of jinxing it, the burned and scarred city dominated the landscape. Above that, a searing white blotch, and high above, a golden crescent moon, ever so slightly visible. They often said, here, that crescent moons were lucky. I hope that they were right. The tiniest little glimmer of color appeared near the blindingly white blotch. Christina looked away instinctively, and the soldier and I followed suit. We probably should have found shelter. But how could we have thought to hide with so much on the line? Even at our distance, the blast knocked us off our feet. A brief accidental glimpse showed me one of the charred skyscrapers downtown falling in the sky in turmoil overhead. The initial glare died down after a moment, and we looked over at the horizon. More white blotches appeared all over the sky, and several of them raced up and up and up, expanding like crazy fault lines through the heavens. Even as we watched, one of them seemed to slice right into that golden crescent, The moon lit up, suddenly presenting itself through the obscuring glow of the daytime sky. It lit up and ruptured in half, slowly and tremendously. No! I shouted. Shit! Oh, shit! The soldier next to me roared. Christina, too, yelled at the top of her lungs. Christ! The moon! I screamed, turning to her. The the moon! Half of it's getting bigger! The soldier shouted. Is it coming this way? The whole sky was falling apart. Gold pierced through in countless places by white, and Vassili of Blaku was undoubtedly dead. It didn't work, Christina shouted to herself, face alive with panic and turning mental gears. Holy shit, it didn't work, she turned to me. There was too much pressure on the inner shield. It couldn't rupture outward. It just... It's just rupturing inward. A great screaming reached us on the wind. What do we do now? I asked, mortified. There's a portal facility underneath this space. We could just go. That piece of the moon is definitely coming this way. The soldier reported, beginning to hyperventilate despite his calm during the rest of our mission. Ma'am or sir, I'd really like to get out of here. Christina nodded at him. Go for it. Your help has been tremendous. There's nothing else you can do here. He nodded, and I saw his youthfulness suddenly become very apparent. It hadn't occurred to me that our courageous allies might have been as young as eighteen. Here, he said, lifting his semi-automatic rifle and handing it to me. I nodded, put the strap around my shoulders and he raced off, heading for the entrance to the underground complex that housed the portal machines. Staring up at the sky as it began bubbling and frothing like a soup made of pure light, she lifted the radio once more. Heath? Are you still there? His reply was filled with static at first, but he was. Heath? I need you to speak to Danny. Can you relay me through? Yes, hold on. A few moments passed, and I felt the panic that gripped our last ally beginning to overtake me as well. Not only was the sky in turmoil, a piece of the freaking moon was falling towards us, but I wasn't going to leave her. Christina? It was Danny's voice, and oddly defensive. What's up? I need to speak to Thomas, she said carefully, eyeing the bubbling sky. A pause followed before the young man spoke again. He doesn't want to talk to you. Please? She lowered her head, radio in hand. We watched that broadcast. We saw what you did. Who you really are. I never lied to you, she responded quietly. He drew in a sniffle. Yeah, but you didn't tell us the truth either. There was so much you never told us. That's lying. I'm sorry. I don't deserve your forgiveness. But I hope you believe me when I say I never tried to do anything but protect you since I met you all. Another voice cut in. I recognized it as a boy I'd taught to skip stones by the water. Thomas had been an introspective and solitary young man when I'd known him, however briefly our meeting had been. Now his voice was filled with pain. You were going to kill me? That's why you even came to where I was. I thought it was just random. I thought I was finally... I just thought... I didn't know you then, Christina replied sadly. I gripped her hand while she spoke. I was damaged. I wasn't a good person. But I want to make up for that now. I read the book, Thomas continued sobbing. It didn't say anything about any of that. It just told me what you were thinking at your daughter's funeral. You didn't read far enough, she answered. The book shows you what you want to see, but it did show you what mattered. If I was your enemy, if I wanted anything other than to protect you, it would have shown you that. Danny's voice cut in again. How can we trust anything you say? Christina let her hand drop. She had no answer. But I did. I took the radio from her. Guys, Con here. I care about the two of you. And I know that she feels ten times what I do. She isn't just going to do what needs to be done. Moments ago, she was ready to die to live up to the notion of a good person. This woman has been through enough pain and danger you couldn't imagine here, trying to be the guardian you deserve. There was a distressed pause. Finally, Thomas spoke. She has? Yeah, I told him, shouting over the rising winds. You see, the sky is coming apart, the inner shield collapsing, I think, and half the moon is bearing down on us. We're kind of running out of time here. What did you do? Danny asked. How did you break the moon in half? Thomas grabbed the radio back. What do you need me to do? I handed the radio to her, and she wiped her face dry. I need you to save every single person on the planet. What? he asked, despondent. How can I do that? The Inner Shield won't stop you from getting here. Not anymore. Do you remember how we met? A few seconds passed. Keep your radio broadcasting, he finally said. I can feel you. She clicked the button and held it. Almost immediately, a sharp blue light appeared, and an oval in space widened near us. Beyond, I saw the headquarters building, including Danny and several others. Thomas faced us and stepped through. The portal closed behind him. He ran to Christina, who hugged him tight for a long moment. Are you ready to save everyone? She asked. He nodded and detached. Will it be just like back then? Yeah. We all moved quickly down from the roof and out onto the open grounds of the base. I watched as Thomas opened a new portal before us. This one went to an open field somewhere. In what looked like the farm worlds I eyed the sky nervously I noted the very large chunk of moon filling the sky amid the rapid white chaos Can I use that? Christina asked me I looked down surprised And then handed her the book that I'd somehow been carrying this whole time Alright, she said taking a deep breath She smiled warmly at me And then at Thomas Isn't this what I always say? Use one apocalypse against another? Thomas laughed And she ran toward the portal. Upon reaching the other side, she darted back to us. She got onto her trembling ground, turned a dime, and ran back. The portal suddenly expanded dramatically to a multiple of its previous size. She didn't stop. Running to us, then back, and then to us again, she brought about another expansion event. I stared. Was the book being taken through the portal repeatedly causing this? The next few trips caused another expansion, and I started to comprehend what she was trying to do. Small and chaotic portals began appearing all over the place. And still, she did not stop. The main portal expanded again and again, collapsing buildings on either side of the base. It began pushing out through trees and the environments began filling with random portals big enough for a person, leading all to that same farm reality. And she still ran. Do it! Thomas shouted in support. His fists clenched. Each new expansion made the portal larger and larger until the top of the main aperture touched the seething sky. It seemed the very fabric of reality itself was coming apart like a melting cloth. I saw city buildings on the horizon collapsing as portals blew through them like paper. And still, she ran, back and forth like a deadly pendulum, her eyes grim and her expression determined. I watched as all sight of the rest of the world was lost. There was only a storm of portals in every direction. Finally, she slowed, breathing hard. Heath, what's it look like? Portals have covered the entire building and basically destroyed everything, he responded. It's not pretty. A lot of people dying, she nodded, sadly. No better way. It had to be done. I think you're right. They're going. They're all going. Rising hope surrounded me. I could see it. A safe and lush farm world through every single portal. With the sky boiling and the moon about to crash down upon us, this escape route, however inexplicable it might have been, was obvious. Through the portals around me, I saw the exits of other portals, and people streaming through them on the distant blue horizon. The portal exits there would destroy the farming machines and systems, but that was just one farm world, and a worthy sacrifice besides. Fifteen billion people lived on the first world. Christina's insane plan, built on a strange book, A not-quite-human young man, and the determined will to make a hard decision, was going to save almost all of the First Worlders, whether or not they deserved to be saved. She fell to her knees, laughing, crying, and shouting for joy all at once. We just... We just wait until the last moment, then we get the hell out of here. Anyone who hasn't gone through, that's on them. Thomas smiled with her, immensely excited. I was the only one looking as the main portal suddenly went white. A strange and bland room appeared beyond. A woman sat at an all-white desk at the far end. I noticed first that she wore glasses, and second that she appeared extremely angry. Confused, I opened my mouth to ask what I was seeing, but there was no time. An odd fleshy tentacle made of what looked like brain matter moved to the portal and tried to come through. It failed, but it didn't give up. A weird long metallic device erupted at the end of that tentacle and began glowing intently. It occurred to me instinctively that I was able to see it. So, light must be able to penetrate back through the portal. A laser? It was pointed at Christina's back. Something was angry, and it was pointing a laser-like device at the woman that had just devastated a planet with millions of portals. It intended to kill her. I knew this. Being a soldier, this threat assessment came to me in a split second. That and I didn't really give a damn what it was. Nothing was going to harm the woman I loved. I lifted the semi-automatic rifle the last young soldier had given me, and I blew away that device with a few furious pinpoint shots. That was what being a soldier was about, I'd always said. Years of training and preparation for a few moments of sudden violence. A split-second hesitation could cost lives, and I wasn't about to hesitate with my heart on the line. Startled by the incredibly loud noise of gunfire, Thomas ducked, and Christina grabbed him and sheltered him while turning around. She saw what was on the other side of the portal and shouted a fearful warning. More brain-mattered tentacles appeared, producing more laser-like devices. And I shot them too. Christina pulled Thomas up and ran for a different portal. Taking the hint, I leapt into one of my own, meeting the two of them on the other side. "'It's been long enough,' Christina shouted over the roaring winds. "'Shut it down!' Thomas nodded, squeezing his eyes shut, and the spectral blue hurricane shrank in a million places all at once, disappearing with a sudden silence. Christina hugged Thomas again, tighter this time, and I joined them. There were no words. We were alive. And the horizon teemed with countless displaced, confused, and overjoyed survivors. We hadn't saved everyone, but we'd saved most of them. The First World's knowledge and culture... Christina's culture, and the culture I had married into, would survive. The crushing fist might have still had us in its grip, but humanity would face it together, as one. Overcome by a fit of amazed laughter at the sudden relief of explosive stress, the three of us fell among the wheat, staring up in disbelief at the calm and clear blue sky. A great many people had lost a great many things, but we'd actually found something in enduring hell. Each of us... Was a part of a family again. The end. More of Matt's work can be found at MattDimirski.com. More of Raphael's work can be found at Short Scary Stories Narrations on YouTube.